Welcome back. Today we're diving into the final episode in our three-episode series that we are calling our Big Brain Series. Once again, I invite everybody to buckle up because we are going to explore the issues around climate, climate action, and climate solutions through a variety of powerful lenses, what we call the Big Brain Thinking Lenses. Thinking in a big brain way is thinking through big ideas, thinking through big ideas, okay? And big concepts so that we can understand our place in the world, the problems we are creating, and the opportunities we can generate to build solutions. The time is now. It's critical. It is really time to step up our game. Hi, I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, and this is Impact Earth. Joining us today is my friend and true big brain thinker extraordinaire, John A. Skip Leitner. Skip is an international resource economist, past president of the Association for Environmental Studies and Sciences, and University of Arizona instructor. His most impressive bio can be found on the show notes page for this show on the Mrs. Green's World website, and I encourage you to visit that page to learn more about Skip and his journey. Also joining us today is Matt McDonald, Managing Director at Stratagen, a clean energy strategy consulting firm which addresses the existential threat of global climate change. So you guys know I'm very excited about that. Matt supports private and public sector clients across numerous domains, including energy storage, power system planning, rate design, grid modernization, distributed energy resources, and the development of new utility business models. He leverages his prior experience as a state regulator to deliver valuable insights to clients. And I also invite you to check out his very big brain bio on the page of Mrs. Green's World for this show. Um, It's interesting to learn more about him and about Stratagen. I went down the rabbit hole, Matt, a little bit. I'm really glad you're here. And it's funny to me how this week has unraveled, and I mentioned it to you off air, about a lot of setting the table for the big brain work we're going to do. I told you I had Dallas Dukes, who's very high up in the TEP system. And then we had uh, Marcy Euler and Greg Wilson from Pima Community College talking about how they're getting the workforce ready. And then we have the big brain thinkers, which is really the icing on the cake because all of the things that you talk about that you're doing is so relevant to TEP and their challenges. And my obsession is how are we going to get from here to there with to, with electrification? I mean, transportation electrification. So anyway, can you tell, I think it's great to have you both here. And, um, you know, the reality is if we're going to survive as citizens of the planet, we always say the planet will be fine. It's all of us that might fry. I hate to be so crass, but it's true. Um, it's a real climate crisis. It's, there's climate cancer and it's spreading. The need for investments in people and infrastructure is quintessential for any kind of success. So we were talking about why are we working on exploration in Mars when we really need to figure out how to preserve this planet? We have to up the ante. We have to get going with investments. So let's start on what we need to do. And Skip, it's a big question, and I'd like it to be more of a conversation, but we need big brain policy. 
program and regulatory innovation to drive the needed and very big scale of investment in both people and our technologies and our infrastructure. So just kind of take it away a little bit. You did a lot of work with Chuck Schumer and his um, committee. So why don't you start? And Matt, it's going to be a conversation. It's not Q&A. Right. No, you raised some good comments, Gina, because we've got to take that big brain and then funnel it into huge investment, both as you say, and I like that, people and infrastructure. We are so underqualified from a people standpoint. Right. We're already 600,000 people short in the job market for manufacturing today, but we're going to have to scale it up to be on the order of 7 to 8 million new people that have the skills, that have the wherewithal, have the knowledge and the authority and the investment to actually drive the change you're talking about. So it's very big. I've even been thinking we may have to go back to the Depression uh, in the United States when we had the, the Works Progress Administration. We had the Civilian Conservation Corps. Actually, they were so successful. We've kind of forgotten about that. But they enabled us to move into World War II with capacity to deliver with Big Bang, and to pick up on something that uh, former Senator John Kerry, now the uh, the Biden administration um, uh, climate uh, diplomat, and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger said, we've got to be thinking about this as uh, World War Zero, zero emissions by the year 2050. And that's that kind of big brain funneled into the scale of investment. One last comment uh, on the scale, because people don't understand how big this really is. We are a $20 trillion economy in the world, the U.S. is. We're going to need at least that big of an investment over the next 20-some years to get the job done. But that investment's got to be met with people that have the authority, that have the skills, have the capacity to work with us. And then the communities themselves have to participate in some very big ways. So, so when you say we are so far behind in terms of numbers of people. Do you mean numbers of people that are trained, ready with the skills that are going to be required to bring these innovations into reality? The manufacturing of them, the servicing of them, the creation of them. When you talk about that big a shortage, what do you mean? I mean exactly that. We do not have the skilled workforce to step up to the level of initiative that we need, both the skilled workforce, I'm talking 8 million people in manufacturing, construction, the stimulus jobs, if you will, above what we're now funding and supporting and some whole new skills that they're going to have to have, but supported by investment to actually make this happen. So we are behind. We are behind. Right. And Matt, I was really interested in your being here because of what's been going on and how much I know about um, transportation electrification and alternative energy. When you hear that from Skip and you're advising clients, talk to me about your landscape and what you're seeing. And I'd like to know a little bit more about Stratagen because you wouldn't be here if it wasn't relevant. Sure. Sure. No, happy to. Um, so, you know, I think as you point out, you know, the the scale of what's in front of us is truly massive. And you know, what we focus on at Stratagen is you know, really transforming energy systems and decarbonizing energy systems. And just think that, let's yeah. press pause, pack that into your brain, people. Say it again. This is what we have to do. And That's it's right. like, that's a little sentence and it's so massive. So right. just really, Absolutely. I like so to it, press pause and absorb. Yeah, and, and I think you know, we, we really work across the energy ecosystem from... You know, governments, state governments, to NGOs, you know, enviros, to consumer advocates, 
as well as you know industry, whether that's electric utilities or whether that's developers and the like. Because really, you know, this is a comprehensive problem that requires holistic solutions. And I think what's unique about some of our perspective that we can bring to bear on this is that we really do understand that 360 degree view of the landscape. The importance of policy and regulation as key threads of this broader tapestry, I think, cannot be understated. Um, but also, you know, designing functional and practical um, policy and regulatory frameworks that actually work with industry, um, that the industry can work with, that these aren't being constructed in an ivory tower that are sort of disconnected from the realities that we're facing and, and really moving forward at scale. And then thinking about what does it require? You know, we're in a very different paradigm right now. Uh, we're working with consumer advocates, for instance, the Office of People's Council in the District of Columbia in D.C., and they're thinking, look, we're facing, like we're looking at net zero by 2050. What does that mean for us as an institution? How do we advocate for consumers in this new paradigm? And what do we need to consider? Um, so thinking much more holistically, not about you know uh, affordability in the terms of a single electric utility bill, but thinking about that whole energy wallet and how are we doing not just a transition, but a just transition and in bringing in um, uh, concepts of equity and environmental energy justice as we're, we're moving forward in, in these ways. And so, you know, these are, these are some of just a few of the topics that we cover at Strategy and we have a lot of modeling analytics. So we really bring together a lot of these key pieces that I think are, are so critical for catalyzing the right types of actions. And where I think this goes, Gina, because I think Matt's laid it out exactly right, of the $20 trillion of investment, roughly, we'll never get the right number, but it's that scale we're talking about. Most of it's going to have to come from the private sector. Yes, government programs can support some of the training, the education, the workforce deployment, but creating the policies that enable the private sector to drive that level of investment, market can't do it on its own. There's going to have to be better policies, better collaboration, better interaction with what we call government but also with the industry itself. There's going to have to be much more way of highly interactive discussion and action together. In a hurry. In a hurry. Big. In a hurry. There's, there's just a moral imperative as far as I'm concerned that it has to be in a hurry. Well, let me just lay that out, that in a hurry. Uh, you and I have talked about this before. We are hoping to grow the economy, the U.S. economy, by 20 25% over the next decade. But we've got to get greenhouse gas emissions down 45% by 2030. That's a frickin' hurry. And it's only going to happen if we have the policies, the programs, driving the investments to make it work. And the thing is, and I, I'm never going to be tired of bringing this up, when you have all of these really, we have we have deadlines. That's how I feel. It's like a deadline, literally deadline if we don't get going. And we had COVID, which set us back. Nobody knows. It's immeasurable how much it set us back. And we have to like, okay, that's fine. What are we going to do anyway? But Skip, when you said um, we need policies to support the public sector, is that a correct feeding back to you? We need the private sector, private sector right. to step up and there's lots of money in the private sector, hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars. Give an example of what you mean. A policy, is it tax incentives? Is it, what is it that the policy piece can do to help accelerate the process? Well, I'll answer it this way and then let Matt fill in because I think he's got the better perspective in that regard. But policy as a guideline, as a set of tools, as a combination of incentives and enforcement mechanisms 
that enable the private sector to step up. I think a lot of them want to do that. We're seeing a lot more in the way of investors saying, we got to get this done. And employees of firms saying, hey, we don't want to work for a firm that's not contributing to a solution. But policies enable that. But uh, with that said, uh, Matt, some thoughts. Yeah, no, they, um, you know, the way I'm thinking about this is, is in a few different ways. I, if you're thinking about the policy regulatory stack, if you will, I mean, there's a, there's a number of different layers to it. And we really need to be activating all of those layers. As I look across the US today, um, the way that our uh, energy, and particularly if we're focusing on energy systems right now, because that is the key to you know, decarbonizing our economy, what we're really tasked with and asking our institutions nationally to achieve is decarbonizing an entire economy. Our plan for doing that is largely through the electricity sector. And the way that we implement and effectuate public policy in the electricity space is at the state level. So we have roughly 50 different energy markets in the U.S. and we're tasking essentially uh, state regulatory bodies known as public utilities commissions with pushing through this Herculean task of economy-wide decarbonization. And these institutions are filled with incredible public servants and incredibly smart folks, but they are... before this task, they were incredibly under-resourced, and don't you know don't have the the skills, capacity, um, and, and tools that they need to to really tackle uh, in a, in a uh, you know a, a task of this magnitude. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm in, in my team is very focused on is is this concept of regulatory innovation as well, and and looking across the the spectrum of. You know the innovation that's required, the new approaches. You know how when we decarbonize an economy. And we're electrifying just about everything that we can electrify. We're now bumping into other sectors. So we're thinking about, you know, we're bumping into the gas sector and how are we decarbonizing that? We're bumping into the transport sector. And we need to be thinking about agile regulatory governance is this term that OECD has has put out. And so this is an internationally recognized um, area of focus that we really need to be much more agile in our regulatory constructs. So what does that mean, Matt? So, you know, but you can think about it in sort of breaking down in, in about four different pillars, right? So we've got um, a pacing problem right now. I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's what keeps me up nights. Absolutely. And it, it does. I mean, it's true. It, and it's, it's hard to understate that pacing problem. And so the pacing problem cuts both ways. One is, of course, we need to accelerate our transformation of power systems globally. But also, I think the pacing side, the other side of that coin is, we actually are experiencing an incredibly rapid rate of technological transformation. And if we think about an illustrative graph, the pace of technological change is exponential. The pace of regulatory change is, is basically flatlined. Okay? I so love we, that yeah. you said that. Like, yeah. And if you could see his hands, yeah. one flies <laughs> right. and the other creeps along like the tortoise and the hare. And we can't, we can't have a tortoise in this race. So we have to close that gap. And the institutions that we've developed in you know, largely... Uh, with a construct that's you know stemming from 19th, 20th century approaches, is just not fit for purpose. So how do we scale? How do we keep pace with technological innovation? Um, closing that regulatory technology gap is is absolutely critical, and that's that's one of the core core pillars. Well, and I might just say, Matt, you know, I've talked about this. It's a little bit like rebuilding the airplane while we're flying it. Oh, and that's the task at hand, and that's the pace and the institutional changes we have to create to enable that flight to continue even as we go zero That's on carbon. That's a great analogy. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, we just have to be up there working on it while it's happening and the rapid pace. So Matt, something you said, I like the word nimble. 
it's a new word that it's not a new word, but people are saying you have to be nimble. Have to. I like that you said agile. And do you like to me? I want a little bit more of a deeper dive into that because we would mandate policies and say, "Bam, this is the way it has to be." And I think what you're saying is, "Yeah, no." We have to have innovative policies, but we have to be agile because we're in uncharted waters. We don't have any, it's not like putting railroad tracks down to, to bring the manufacturing, you know, of, of the West or, or getting a transportation system with trucks. It's such uncharted waters, or is that just my bias? No, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, a few ways that I that I manifest that or be, be, begin to think about that, you know, as applying it to regulatory frameworks. I mean, a couple of things. Yes, we need to be applying design thinking and design theory to our regulatory processes. That um, we, we can't, we have to move out of this static uh, phase and move much more into a dynamic process. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like regulatory schemes that move away from an input-driven focus to outcome based and what we care about is is the outcomes at the at the other end and that's what we need to be incenting our regulated entities to be focused on what are the outcomes that we want to see if we're using the electricity system as an example what are the outcomes that we want to see across the electricity system you know 50 years ago we may have been focused on reliability affordability and safety right we're still focused on those but we're also needing you know Scale at scale decarbonization. We need to be thinking about equity and environmental justice. There is a a set and resilience, of course. There is a much more expanded set of outcomes that we need to be focused on, and we need to be incenting and, and delivering financial returns to these regulated entities that are aligned with those customer centric outcomes. They certainly they just certainly aren't today, and we need to be working on that. And that's something that I you know, refer to as performance based regulation in the electricity. Um, um, uh, framework, and that's something that I spent a lot of years in Hawaii, transforming that utility business model and, and realigning customer interests with shareholder interests. And and f- for too long, we were just pushing a rock up a hill, and I, I just was kind of pounding the desk at the time and saying, "We just we need to terraform. We need to move this hill, and we need to make sure that the rock is rolling downhill. We're aligning financial incentives with what we actually want to see out of the outcomes." Yeah, did I tell you my middle name is Sisyphus? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that we were living in many ways. We are living the myth of Sisyphus, pushing that rock up the hill every day and expecting different outcomes. And we, what we need to do is change that terrain and allow that rock to roll downhill and, exactly. and really leverage private industry in that way. So, for any of you that are now addicted to these big brain series, which I am, and I hope that there will be more. I'm saying that out there. Um, who knows? We'll see what happens. But. Um, Skip is a renaissance man, a philosopher. He knows things, and that's a very high compliment. And I've learned a lot from you, even about the four horsemen and that analogy. So one thing you said really concerns me, Matt, and I'd like you both to weigh in on that. You said, if I am being a good listener, that a lot of it is going to be reliant upon state regulations. So what cha- that to me is so fraught with challenges because we live in a state that to me is not super climate friendly. I want to be careful. I don't want to politicize the show, but let's be honest, we stink at that innovation area. So how can we, is it going to require some federal and state? I mean, and look at the revolutions that are going on and people don't tell me what to do, except we're going to tell you what to do in this particular area. I mean, I don't want to go there today, especially. But what, it's fraught with challenges in my mind. Like when you were saying, I'm going, 
if it's the states and New Mexico is innovative and creative and Arizona is saying no way, what, what, how does that work, Matt? You have clients that I'm sure are asking you, how is that going to work? And Skip, I'd like you to weigh in on it too. Yeah, so it is a challenge. And, um, you know, a few thoughts in response. So on the one hand, yes, you know, I referenced the sort of policy regulatory stack. We definitely need and uh, will benefit from additional federal direction. Um, in a system of federalism, as we have here, though, there are limitations jurisdictionally as to you know, right, what, right. What, can be, um, what can be effectuated. But if we're talking about tax incentives on certain technology sets like uh, standalone battery storage, like you know, continuing solar wind, um, thinking about you know, what, how are we decarbonizing these hard-to-electrify sectors through um, you know, carbon-free molecules like green hydrogen, you know, you know, um, looking at tax incentive structures there. That was something that was on the table um, through Build Back Better, and I'm very hopeful that that's something that will be on the table still here uh, into the future, because that would be you know very impactful. Obviously, uh, a sort of a clean energy standard that is national in scope would be incredibly useful. Um, but you know, there are political realities that are at play, and so I think. But there's much we can do um, outside of the federal context. To your point, so. Looking at the states, uh, the good news is um, much of our progress uh, in this dramatic energy transition, and I think it is worth taking it a step dramatic. back and yes. just and just acknowledging the progress that has been made. It is dramatic. I mean, we talk about uh, California hitting you know over ninety percent um, variable renewables in the course of a day. Hawaii's been doing that. You know, certainly Kauai Island for um, you know years now. And you know, when I started in Hawaii, you know, we were told this is impossible. This will break the system. This will result in blackouts. And yet here we are. And I think it's just it's good to sort of hang on to that and recognize the amount of progress we have been making because it's been substantial. And yes, policy's been playing a role in that. But the good news is the economics are now there. And you know, this is the least cost power resources just about globally, certainly in the US. And at times, new renewable generation capacity is actually cheaper than still running old coal plants, just, just from an O&M you know, operating and maintenance perspective on these old units. So this transition is not just good for the planet and good for our decarbonization and climate goals. It just makes economic sense. It, it is does. It is a no-brainer in that, in that and regard. And 10 years ago, it didn't. That's exactly right. It didn't. When I had Paul Bonavia from TEP many years ago sit in one of these chairs and he said, here's how much it costs for a megawatt coal-powered, here's for a solar. It's not only flipped, it's dramatically shifted. So, Skip, do you want to weigh in on that one? Well, actually, I think Matt brings up a good point just to step back a moment because he said yesterday's regulatory perspective when TEP 20 years ago was going to build a new coal-fired power plant, we were just, in a regulatory sense, keeping the cost to consumers down as low as possible, but just making sure they had a return on their investment for that coal-fired power plant. But what Matt is now suggesting, and you can correct me, Matt, is we've got to look forward to the future, not just having a power plant that you get a return on, but having a facility that reduces carbon emissions big time and that both customers and stakeholders or shareholders generate a return as well. In a lot of ways, that return is going to be avoided climate damages. As I've said to you before, uh, 2021, we had over $145 billion in the U.S. of various climate damages, whether fires, whether floods, uh, hurricanes, what have you, drought, like the drought we're in here in Arizona right now. So we're beginning to see those penalties come in, 
but that performance-based regulation is going to take new skills. I think these state regulatory agencies are understaffed. We need more skilled people working together with the federal government and with state agencies in addition to the utility commissions. We're so understaffed, so underauthorized to act in an agile sort of way. That's going to be a big issue, I think, that we're going to have to confront. We need, don't need to think about this so much as a cost, but as an investment in the future that we hope to achieve. It even comes down to a granular level, which I like to do, come from the big brain thinking to knowing about um, the installation of EV charging stations. It's fraught with challenges right now. I know many stories because of, oh, this created a power surge and we thought it was going to be working here. But when you talk about that nimble piece, Matt, I see that. we This is uncharted waters. We're in space. We're on the moon. We're seeing how it's going to work. So let's, it's not a shift. It's a perfect segue for 12 years, maybe, of the 15 years we've been doing this, James and I would listen to the same guests and we'd finish the show and we'd say, I'd say, well, why can't we do that? And why is that not happening? And how come we're not doing that innovation? And the answer that we came to is, if it's not about the money, it's about the money. So you have introduced a concept to me that I love about the rise of community and consumer-centric thinking rather than just the ROI. We cannot just keep thinking about the ROI because we can't get from here to there, if you ask me, if that's all we're thinking about. There's so much at stake here, like our very lives and survival. So you want to take a stab at that, Matt? Yeah, no, I think just to put a finer point on that and just, you know, for awareness, you know, if we're talking about electric utilities, which I view as some critical critical institutions in, in in terms of how we're going to electrify right. transport, how we're going so to electrify much. some buildings, how we're going to enable the decarbonization of our economy. Utilities, electric utilities, will be at the heart of that um, almost necessarily. How electric utilities make money today, investor-owned utilities, and how they've made money for the last hundred years is um, through the deployment of capital. So they invest in in infrastructure. Uh, the bigger, more expensive the infrastructure is, the higher the rate of return, you know, the, the more their earnings will be because they earn a rate of return on that deployed capital. So this is what's often referred to as a capital bias because if there is a need on the system, there is going to be an inherent preference for a capital-intensive solution because that is how they deliver value to shareholders. And in fact, their board has a fiduciary duty to shareholders right. to maximize value. So we're asking them almost to break their fiduciary duty to shareholders under the incentive structures we have in place right now in order for us to get uh, to where we need to go. And in my mind, that's just completely untenable. We have to completely uh, undo the link between capital investment and earnings that investor-owned utilities are receiving. And unless we do that, this transition will be unaffordable. Quite frankly, and and we need to move beyond that. And that gets to some of your points about how are we deploying EV charging? Um, how are we thinking about upgrading our distribution grid to absorb the hundreds of thousands of EVs that will be coming on? And the incentives for just gold plating the system and saying, "Well, we gotta, you know, we gotta build this thing out to the max," is going to be there under the current incentive structure. What we need to be thinking about is how do we deploy, you know, the types of consumer-centric structures that allow for consumers to be active participants in managing when they charge, 
based on certain price signals to them that, that allow us to integrate EVs and other distributed energy resources in a very cost-effective way and allow them to actively participate and support the grid and all the services that we need as, to balance that. Well, let me give you an example of the scale because it picks up on what Matt was saying. We have in this country, in the U.S., about 266 million cars and trucks. We have in this country about 130 million homes. We have in this country about 100 billion square feet of commercial real estate at work. That is a huge scale. And if we enable the utilities to move away from a commodity-based return, in other words, they get a return based on a kilowatt hour sold, but we instead create a service-oriented economy where the consumer and the shareholders generate the return because of value added that's created, because there's more value, we're not using as much water, we're not destroying as much soil, we're having a healthier air, those kinds of things, and we're reducing greenhouse gas emissions big time. So both the investors and the consumer derive value in return for services, not for a commodity we call the kilowatt hour. That's part of the regulatory policy making change I think we're going to have to face to do the scale. I mean, my gosh, even if we hit 100% electric vehicles by 2035 for GM uh, want to move in that direction, we've still got 266 million vehicles to transition by the year 2050. It's huge. It's huge. I can barely get my head around it. I'm serious because it's so massive. And when you think about trace minerals and is there going to be enough copper and all of those, the myriad of other things, I just kind of think I have to do what I've done most of my entrepreneurial life. You just jump off the cliff and you know the parachute's going to open before you hit the ground. I'm barely <laughs> kidding. It's the, it's like, just have faith, Gina, and keep doing what you're doing and raising awareness and getting conversations. I'd like to ask both of you, really your honest reflection on if there's a stereotype or a trend or something in terms of consumers and consumer expectation. Because I feel very uh, strongly both ways. <laughs> There's a part of me that says consumers are asking more, they're more informed, especially younger consumers. But my, like, and I live in a bubble because I hang around with smart people like you guys and I, we're all climate activists and on and on and on. What's your sense of where the consumers are? Because this is not going to be just a policy-driven, mandated uh, government, uh, let's get forward. We need the consumers. So what's what's each of your... Um, take on where are the consumers? Are their expectations shifting, Matt? Absolutely. Um, I think in, you know if we're if we're focusing still on the electricity sector, um, you know we're in an environment now or in a landscape where consumers have choices that they've never had before in this space. And I think if you just even look 10, 20 years ago, the way that we even talked about consumers in this industry, they were you know meters, they were ratepayers, uh, they were static. And they accepted exactly. a certain amount of kilowatt hours of the commodity that is electricity. Uh, this is really a paradigm shift because this is the first time where customers have a lot of options. Um, you know, they they have you know electric vehicles, they have rooftop solar vol- photovoltaics, uh, PV on the roof, they have distributed energy storage. I mean, we saw this a lot in Hawaii while I was there because of the economics were just you know the the inflection point hit there sooner because of the high cost of electricity. Uh, you look at Hawaii right now as a bit of a living laboratory for what we may be expecting as cost curves continue to decline in the mainland U.S. You know, one in one out of three single-family homes 
has solar PV on the roof. Wow. Roughly 20% of Hawaiian wow. Electric's customers have solar PV on their roofs. So, you know, what this starts to, to indicate is, you know, there's a lot of choice. And, you know, one of the things that we worried about, you know, when I was a part of regulatory staff was, how are we helping to manage this transition? How are we helping to ensure that customers aren't leaving the grid and imposing those costs on the, the most vulnerable and then the lowest social demographics uh, of the system, because that's that's a real fear here. Is that we are, you know, um, without thoughtful, holistic policies and regulatory approaches, uh, we're going to have a very tribalized and fractured system as as these choices come to bear. So, customers have different expectations now than they did before because the way they interact with their other institutions, be they financial banks or be they other industries like Netflix and, and, and Uber and, and uh, you know uh, Airbnb and the like. There is no longer this, um, you know, paper bills, you know, just you know, call center sort of mentality. There is right. a need to be much more interactive and take a lot more ownership because it's not just about convenience; it's also about additional services. You know, if your lights go out and you have distributed uh, storage, you're unaffected. You know, and there's there's a lot of um, opportunities there, and and I think where folks often go wrong about predicting customer uptake on some of these technologies. They assume that everyone's thinking about this from a very stoic, rational economic actor perspective. That's not how consumers make purchases. There is a really complex set of motivations, including emotional, including right. you know, convenience. Right. Uh, when folks are purchasing automobiles, for instance, they're not buying the most cost-effective, rational uh, automobile. There, there's a lot that goes into that. It's an expression of oneself. It's, you know, I want a resilience value. I want to make sure that you know my, my home is taken care of. If there's a, a resilience issue, or you know, if the grid goes down because it's a really hot day, I want to make sure I have air conditioning. So. You know, I think what we're going to be seeing is across both EVs, as well as some of these other DER resources, that you know customers are really going to be embracing these technologies. And what that's going to require is a very different business model approach from a utility. It's no longer a one-way flow; it is a two-way interactive and, and very highly participatory system. Well, let me ask the question. I mean, you raised some good points, Matt. And yes, I see a lot, particularly younger consumers, are more aware and wanted to be more involved as part of the solution. But there may also be too many choices that we have to focus on the idea of decarbonization, even as we use energy, even as we use resources much more productively. So that's part of the regulatory process. We've got to have guidelines to enable consumers to be more aware of what are the smarter choices. Not that they have more choices, but they there are a set of smarter choices that actually get us to that larger target by 2035, 2030, 2050. So that's part of the regulatory, how we can inform, how we can motivate, and then enable consumers to make those choices. We've got markets that are responsive to them. We've got technical people on the ground can answer their questions. We've got funds that they can borrow at low cost to make the transition quickly. So lots of choices, but we also have a policy regulatory framework that guides those choices, not dictates, but that informs and guides the right choices. And one of the things that encourages me with you guys and the other guests I've had and living and showing up in the world every day is I think there is maybe for the first time, and maybe again, it's because it's people in my bubble, there's a real acknowledgement for the, the DEI, the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece of this because we know 
that the poorest get hit hardest, longest, first when it comes to the impact of climate change. I feel encouraged that here you are, both of you, talking about we can't just make sure that rich white people have electric vehicles. We have to figure out how, since we're all breathing the same air, there's a collective consciousness for these moves because what we're basically talking about, what's driving this for me, is survival for, you know, we talk about my granddaughter Rooney, who's three. Well, I really want to put half skin in the game till the my last dying breath to make sure we're moving ahead and we can get there fast enough. So what about the consumer in terms of, I don't know how to say this other than, are they patient? I, I find myself being that consumer that I want it now, I want it right, I want it quickly. Um, it's awful sometimes and I have to stop because I'm not a big fan of Amazon at all. But if I go off the Amazon for ordering something that I can't get easily locally, it's like, oh, oh my gosh, it's going to be here in five days. What the heck? Amazon, it'll be here tomorrow by noon. And I want to get away from that mindset. So is it, is it going to require an urgency and patience? Does that? There's my question. Does that make sense? We are going to have to get on this train knowing there are going to be little left turns and detours and right-hand turns. So the consumer has to be educated and be patient, but still create that urgency. The consumer has to be educated, but also enabled. Thank you. And we have to allow that demand for immediacy on the one hand by enabling a quicker response and an easier switch and a more fuel-efficient, more solar-driven kind of use of electricity. So we've got to understand the consumer's expectations on the one hand, but then again, policy regulation that enables and informs consumers so that we can have a quicker choice that moves us in the right direction, and we're so far behind that. The good news is there's urgency, but there's hope, but that hope has to be implemented by useful policies and guidelines and regulatory mechanisms. Maybe just to add on to that, I think um, maybe for too long in the early stages of the climate movement, there was too much focus put on the individual consumer and what that individual needs to do in terms of you know carbon footprint. I think you know we've we've come to see you know how this individual carbon footprint concept was actually propagated by the oil industry to sort of detract from the real structural and, and sort of policy changes that are needed. It's, um, you know, there may be some, you know, trade-offs from a consumer perspective, but we we really need to do this in a holistic and comprehensive way um, at, a, at a very high level and a structural policy level such that we're, you know, still maintaining a level of convenience for consumers, but, you know, putting the onus on um, our industry to, to make this transition happen. Um, to Skip's point, you know, we need to enable consumers to to be able to move in this direction. They need to be very much bought in and a part of this process. We, you know, this is this is why you know energy equity and environmental justice. These aren't just moral imperatives and ethical imperatives. They're also critical to the transition happening, you know, effectively and, and deeply, um, because there will otherwise be rejection uh, of this transition if we don't bring everyone along in this social uh, contract. Yeah, yeah, let me build on that because. There's studies out there saying just 100 global companies in the world that are responsible for 71% of our emissions. Yeah, 100 companies. We're talking the oil companies, natural gas companies, that sort of thing. If we can 70%? enable 70%. 70%. If we can enable the consumers of those oil companies to be aware, 
to meet their demands in other ways, that they let the companies know we've got to do it differently. We don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. So that gives a sense of opportunity because there's not that many companies, but they, we are all supporting those companies because we buy their products. But picking up what Matt just said, if they're enabled, if they're made aware, and then we can facilitate a smarter decision, the consumers can redirect the companies in a better direction, even as the investors of those companies begin to wake up and say, hey, we definitely got to invest in, in a more immediate opportunity than we're doing now. I just have to comment on one thing you said, Matt, that made me want to chuckle. My mother paid the utility bill. That's all. We, it came and you paid it. Water bill, same thing. So last week I discovered, much to my own embarrassment, that I am on a time of use plan with TEP. And the myriad of choices are sometimes mind-boggling. I basically forgot that I did that. And our guest who was here, Ryland, he said, he saw my electric bill over on the side of the desk and he said, oh, you are on time of use. And then I did a real deep dive, even though I've done shows on it, know how great it is. There are choices. So I'm leading, I have a question here. Um, and oh, by the way, we were 80% compliant last month. <laughs> so it, it kind of weaves in. What I bring is the consumer perspective to these big brain science conversations. But all I said to my family is, this is how hard time of use is because summer just started. You cannot run the dish, you, can't, you should not run the dishwasher, the dryer. Those are big, big things and have your electricity, your um, air conditioner set a little bit higher between three and seven. This is not rocket scientist. I just, I just explained it to you. So in, when you talk about the money, Skip, the money we're going to have to spend, is some of that money going to have to be used to actually educate consumers? Educate and incentivize, for example. I'm exploring the idea of what I call energy water benefit certificates. Typical home may emit six to 10 tons of carbon dioxide a year out of that use of energy in the home. But if we give the consumer $100 for every ton they avoid, wow, and they do it year after year, in addition to the savings that they'll appreciate from the better use of solar energy, for example, or better use of energy in the home, better appliances, Energy Star type products, they're saving money and they're being incentivized to reduce their carbon to a positive tune. That also then informs, there's nothing that's going to inform people like a good benefit or certificate in addition to the savings they might already enjoy. And we may have to move down a path like that to further accelerate both the awareness and the movement to some positive action. In addition to to incentives, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for technological enablement to make this easy. You know, it's like it's one of these things where you don't want to have to think about what time of day it is. I really don't. But, you know, the, 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 in terms <laughs> of will. when you're running your dishwasher. And so that's great right now. I think, you know, if we fast forward, you know, even just five plus years, you know, what I think we're going to be seeing is a lot more automation in terms of how the energy use of a home or a building is interacting with the broader system. The reason why we want to send price signals to Eugenia in terms of time of use is because there, there, it is more or less expensive to operate this system during different times of day, particularly when we have a lot of solar generation on the system. And so, you know, we're really where we want to be moving towards is a place where 
you know, your system is set up to your preferences, maybe even to learns about your preferences, like a Nest thermostat, or when you set your iPhone on a charger, it'll optimize its charging overnight once it learns your charging patterns. So, you know, just taking taking this out of our brain space, allowing us to monitor and control it and override it when we need to, but having it operate and, and configure in the background. When you plug your EV in overnight, it's going to optimize, you know, based on the price signals that it's receiving from, from the grid. Those types of activities where it's not like really putting a lot of burden on the individual, but you know, using technological enablement to allow for a much more cost-effective energy transition going and forward. And it cracks me up when you bring up these examples. I'm sitting here thinking, if you had told me 10 years ago that we could be halfway on our way to Taos, New Mexico, and my daughter says, oh, I forgot to set the alarm for the house. And she pulls out this little thing. I'm like, what are you doing? And then, oh, I had to change the watering system and it's on our smartphones to change the watering system. So as daunting as I think it is to get from here to there, those kinds of things just happen in the blink of an eye. So here's a big, really big brain question. And and what what came to me when I'm digesting all of this and, and trying to really do the deep dive it has to be a purposeful and productive investment. And it's kind of like, who's the zookeeper? Who's the orchestra leader? Because what I thought about, it's so weird how it's like this just in. I thought about there has to be judicious use of chemicals. And I thought about fracking because sure, that that supplies some natural gas. Isn't that great? Well, fracking is like one of my greatest nightmares. I had nightmares about it when I was doing a lot of shows on fracking because it's like I just, I kept feeling Mother Earth being raped. That's how I felt. And I know that sounds a little dramatic, but I had a lot of trouble when I was covering fracking, keeping it together. But chemicals and materials and people, doesn't there have to be some really big brain thought put into those components? I mean, you're teaching at the U of A. You have clients that are asking all these questions. So what are the, some of the big brain considerations that have to go into that? Well, we can't just like rape and pillage to get uh, clean energy. That doesn't even sound like fun, to tell you the truth. No, it does not <laughs> sound like fun. It does not. Well, back to episode one of this podcast, we talked about a system of apps where people are informed about where we are as a nation so if we have uh, the Department of Energy, the Environmental Protection Agency, Department of Agriculture, Education, Health, Human Services all agree we have to get to a particular level by some period in the short future, and we know where we are, we're informing people. And then if we can use those apps to pick out some of the solutions they can use on their own, even as the utilities are providing other services, and we can see real time what's happening, that may be an important step forward because we don't know the scale. We don't know the, the way uh, forward. And there's a national goal, but there are also community goals. There's also state goals and different agencies within those communities and those states. So how, if we can coordinate that flow of information and we agree from a science-based perspective, here's where we got to go. Here's where you are. Imagine these kinds of steps you might be able to take as a household or as a business or as a local government what it is that can enable. And then that becomes a real-time upgrade towards meeting that goal. And if we don't meet that goal, then we may have to put in more stringent measures because it is an absolute imperative that we reach that goal. I get it. Matt? Yeah, I think you know it's, it's clearly a, a comprehensive sort of all-the-above approach. We need 
you know, more investment in material sciences to make sure that we're moving away from some of these, um, you know, uh, highly impact, you know, environmental impacts uh, from certain mining components. And the we're trace making minerals. Yeah, that's right. Those that's things. right. And then these are some constraints as well, just in terms of rare earth minerals and other inputs into some of the technologies that we need in order to make this transition. So thinking that through, and, and there's been some gains and strides made already in terms of some of those materials inputs, and, and we need to continue to focus and invest in that. A lot of good folks making a lot of gains on workforce development. That's going to be critical. Um, and then we look at you know the, the regulatory and policy construct to kind of bring it back around and, you know, Embracing this notion of learning by doing. I mean, Gina, you referenced sort of jumping in with with two feet from an entrepreneurial type mindset, and that's what we need to bring into the regulatory frameworks as well. And thinking about this concept that I uh, have been working on, known as a regulatory sandbox, and w- what this is essentially is 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 really creating a safe space, you know, in terms of consumer protections, but a a space in which we can innovate. And we can learn by doing, and we can, you know, do demonstration projects. We can learn from them, and we can create the rebuttable presumption that if it's successful, it will scale. And rather than sort of the traditional platform of, well, we'll do a pilot, you know, we'll do it for two years, we'll write up a report, and it'll sit on a shelf, and that, that was fun, and we'll go back to our, our regular um, course of business. We need these types of structures to enable a progress across a number of different fronts uh, in the electricity sector. I've, was just had the privilege of supporting the, the Connecticut uh, Public Utilities Commission or, or the Pura, as it's known there, to to develop um, one of these regulatory sandbox for the electricity sector, known as the Innovative Energy Systems Program. So I think these show a lot of promise, and they can be um, you know utilized across a number of different sectors and types of industry, whether that's climate adaptation, whether that's environmental protection, you know, other other forms of, of this. It's been deployed in, in Arizona actually in terms of fintech. So there's there's lots of t- types of applications for this new agile regulatory. Approach. So what you're really saying, Matt, it seems to me, is not a regulatory sandbox, but many sandboxes. Correct. Water, soil, air, energy, carbon, markets, consumers working together, and how the utilities can enable consumers to make better choices in a very real time, in a very big way. So a lot of sandboxes. But, but let, let's go on that one. Okay. Because to me... Yes, I love the idea of the sandbox because to me it conjures up all kinds of fun, creativity, making different things, not worrying about the outcome. I mean, that's a really great one for me. I love it. However, who's got to be in the sandbox? Because one of the things that that I really loved talking to Dallas Dukes from TEP the other day is that the IOUs are working together, independent um, owned utility companies are working together all over the country so that they're not duplication of effort, so that they're not doing things that didn't work in Connecticut. They're telling people in Tucson that didn't work, don't try that. Who has to be in the sandbox? It cannot just be the solar people in one and the the water people in another. Can you respond to that, you guys? Because it has to be integration of thought and purpose for us right. to get there. Agreed? I completely agree. And and I think, you know, just just to pick on the Connecticut example. Uh, we structured and designed that, and Impura uh, approved a, a design that allowed for multiple pathways into that um, sandbox. And so, yes, it is the whole ecosystem that needs to be involved. Love it. Customer, innovator, and utility. And, um, and it, I think part of that design function is also to say that, well, we don't necessarily you know, want to continue a paradigm where the utility is the sole gatekeeper of innovation and deployment. And But 
the goal here is really to to incent change management from the utility so that they are much more inclined to partner Got because it. they are such a, a um a key they're implementer. a force yeah, they are a force well they're they're really important they are they, the force they're the ones that uh Operate the system and, and keep the lights on for everyone, right. so that and it's yeah. or let them earn money in new ways rather than simply a return on investment. In other words, building a coal-fired power plant or natural gas power plant, earning revenues in different ways, they can be brought into it, even as the customers also benefit and see immediate incentives or opportunity working together. So, I want to know this. And I, I don't even know what I think I want the answer to be. And a lot of times I want a certain answer because that will give me hope or inspire me or validate something that I already know. I know that I'm not the person that always measures everything. Like, And the scientists say, if you can't measure it, it doesn't happen. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I think it's very valid and important and critical. I do. When you're talking about the... I want to make up a word, I think. The massivity, massivity. Ooh, good word. Can we use that? Let's just make that word, hashtag (laughs) massivity. It's so big and it is happening and there is hope and there is innovation. What are some of the ways that we can measure that we're even going in the right direction? You know what I mean? Because you're talking about a lot of technological, scientific production innovation as people that really do measure, both of you, it's not just seeing how the CO2 emission level is at the end of a year. What are some of the other ways we can measure if we're going in the right direction and fast enough? Is that an answerable question? <laughs> well, I've thought sometimes we should have buildings, uh, commercial buildings, that when you come in the door and you hear it groan, you know it's underperforming. <laughs> it's not living up to one. what we need. But if it's going, ah, yeah, right. you know that building is performing better. So maybe we need some more visual, music, sound support together with, uh, we, we're seeing more of the use of what we call dashboards on buildings. You can see real time right, right. how buildings are performing and more of those integrated through our lives. But then, uh, dare I say, uh, even when we get our tax returns filed, they, that those uh, forms we feel have information about climate and opportunity. If we get our social security check, it's also accompanying with information to help us and uh, buy the right things and to know that we're going to, if AARP sends out a magazine where we get a benefit by buying products through their system of networks, a lot of different ways to bring it to happen, but we're going to need to bring dashboards, information, but we're going to need to be music, visual arts, and other ways of informing uh, that we've never really thought about before. A very integrated yeah. concept. So Matt, do you want to add to that? Sure. I think from you know from a policy and regulatory perspective, I'm increasingly a proponent of the fact that you know data and even big data is it, you just articulated the complexity of what we're facing. If we're bringing it to the electricity system, a big part of performance-based regulation that we referenced earlier is the articulation of discrete performance metrics. Um, those metrics are tied to the outcomes that we want to see across the system. Okay. Whether yes. they be an, an yes. equity outcome. We, we need to be think, being very thoughtful about what are the metrics that we can articulate in Makes order to sense. measure achievement of that. Right, right. And that's true of decarbonization, of course, but that's also true of things like you know DER asset utilization. Are we really leveraging the EV that's sitting in someone's driveway or, or the, the solar that's on someone's roof? Let's let's bring that into the fold in, in, in a shared and uh, effect, cost-effective way. So yes, understanding the limits of metrics and, and data um, but also using its its uh, potential to really unlock and understand achievement in a, in a much more 
uh, fundamental and quantifiable way because the complexity is only accelerating. And for policymakers and regulators to continue to steer and continue to validate and inform progress, we need to, to really empower regulators and policymakers with that quantified data at their fingertips. What great answers, you guys, really yeah. and truly. So this is it. <laughs> An hour has gone oh, darn, by. Darn. <laughs> it, 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 it defies description to me because to me, I could definitely keep the show going for two more hours without even. I have like twenty five more questions, so Ooh. that means there has to be more. But anyway, I only have three answers. That's not true. <laughs> I know you better because we we didn't even talk about food chain and food supply and the trucks that are on the roads. And we don't have time for that because it's real. We all have Good time comment. constraints. Yeah. But yeah. there's so much more to this. But we, we, I want to say to our listeners, if your big brain wasn't activated, you really weren't listening. And that's not a judgment. It's just an observation because my brain is like, just, it's like, it's, it's like, if you want a little sound in there, it's like there's so many good things to think about and to be receptive to and be ready for and to participate. And in my brain, the words woohoo come to mind. Woohoo, woo-hoo, that's good. That's really good. So my my thoughts are deep and wide. My final thoughts, first of all, from my heart, what an honor it is for me to be sitting with the two of you with what you're working on, with what you're thinking about, with what you're trying to solve. It's what makes me tick. It's what brings me joy and sharing it with our amazing listeners that care and give me feedback. And I will be sending this podcast to some of them to get really honest feedback. They, these these have challenged me to think bigger, think holistically, use my big brain. I realize that we covered lots of pretty intense content, but every bit of it matters. It matters to me, to my grandchildren, to our community, and to the planet. And when I get to the crux of this, what it matters, why it matters to me is because I need inspiration and you two inspired me. And I mean that sincerely. It was an inspiration because it that's what we have to have to keep hope. And it can be so daunting and overwhelming that the big brain, my lizard brain can shut down. So I hope that this series inspires all of our listeners and I want to leave you with one thought. And of course, with me, it's a very long thought. It's not like a <laughs> sentence. Everybody knows that. The climate crisis is real. It's happening as we speak. The threats are increasing. People are losing their homes in record numbers just to mega fires and dying from upper respiratory disease because of those fires. We need all caring, committed citizens of the planet to become engaged in some type of climate action, even if it's as simple as if your utility company has a time of use plan, consider it. That's a simple thing. You don't have to go out and start solving the climate crisis. That's untenable. And why? It's because I know there's an issue that everyone cares about, a cause that you believe in, an elected official that you want to see stay there or get in there that is aligned with your values and the moral imperative that's facing us. And it may be doing something as simple as planting a tree. Everybody can do something. So my final thanks is always to you, our listeners, because without you, there would be no us. And Matt and Skip, go forth and make a ruckus. I'll be watching and helping and cheering you on because your work really matters and you matter. So thank you. Like I said, woohoo. <laughs> oh, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. 